you would turn in your Bible to Genesis 2. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. Indeed, at the cross, we see our sins fully punished and yet fully pardoned. And that's why we can sing, His mercy is more. Wonderful news for us. You can't get past that. You can't get over it. It's good to be here tonight looking at Genesis 2, a very important passage for us. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word tonight. Lord, thank you for allowing us to worship you through song tonight and scripture reading and prayer. And now we pray, Lord, that we would worship you rightly and faithfully in spirit and in truth through the preaching of the word and the hearing of the word. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy that we know supremely in the Son of God. And we ask these things in his name for his sake. Amen. Maybe you're familiar with Hans Christian Andersen's The Emperor's New Clothes. Uh, there, that is a kind of like a, an allegory, a story uh, of a certain emperor who prided himself on looking good and wearing fashionable, costly uh, clothing. And so when two weavers, who were actually con men, came to him and promised to weave him some costly um, clothing for the right price, he conceded. And he was especially embraced their promise that the clothes would be invisible to those who were incompetent or unfit to work in his kingdom. And so he made that decision and made that transaction And he was willing to pay big sums for that. Soon, the emperor, though, became curious, and he sent his chief minister to check on his clothes that he had bought that were being worked on. And when the minister got there, he didn't see any clothes on the empty loom, even even though the con men pretended to be weaving. Well, yet not wanting to appear unfit or incompetent for the kingdom... Um, The minister returned back to the emperor, and he returned with a glowing report. Well, later, the weavers asked for more money, and the emperor got a little impatient, so he sent a second official who returned back with an even more glowing report. Finally, the emperor went himself, and though he didn't see anything on the loom, he didn't want to come across unfit himself. After all, he's the emperor. And so he praised the clothing and even gave the weavers medals. Well, on the day set for the great parade where he was going to unveil the beautiful clothing, the con men dressed the emperor in the new clothes and then they fled town. And as the emperor paraded before the people, ah, natural, all the people praised his clothing. Until a child said, and it took a child, the emperor has no clothes. Well, let's make a contemporary application of that well-known story. Let's divide it up into three groups of people today. So, one-third of the people uh, continued to praise the emperor's clothes, even though they knew deep down... That was all a farce. 
But they didn't want to be on the wrong side of history. They didn't want to be canceled. Another, another third of the people became emboldened. It gave them confidence to say, he has no clothes. And then another third, they actually believed the story after having been told that story so much. They believed the narrative. They believed the propaganda. Well, let's apply that more specifically in today's culture. So, for instance, you have the transgender athlete, Leah Thomas, who on Thursday night won the national championship in the free 500-yard freestyle championship and became the first transgender athlete to win a national championship. Sally Jenkins, get this, of the Washington Post articulated the prevailing sentiment of you know, a large percentage of our people in, in America when she said this on Thursday. To exclude trans athletes from elite competition out of fear of our own constricting fears and uncertainty is wrong, harmfully so. And then she also wrote this. Hate to tell you, but everyone is trans. That's the emperor's new clothes. It's no different. Abraham Lincoln uh, once asked an audience, how many legs does a dog have if you count the tail? Well, everyone in the audience said five. He said, no. The fact that you called the tail a leg does not make it a leg. Speaking of calling a tail a leg, another application is of the emperor's clothes is that of marriage. As we know, it has been redefined to include two men or two women or whatever other you want to call it. Now think, think about this. In 2001, one-third of Americans, and I found this kind of high, but this is the statistics. Uh, One-third of American adults supported same-sex marriage. I was an intern uh, at that time. One-third of Americans. By 2013, 50% of adults supported same-sex marriage. And when gay marriage was legalized in 2015, 55% of Americans Agreed. Now, if this is inflated, and it may be, it's still too many. Since then, get this, support has grown even further with 61% of Americans affirming gay marriage in 2019. 61, 6 out of 10 Americans. This is the emperor's new clothes. And that's why I think there's no... Doctrine, I think we can say this, no doctrine that perhaps is more under attack than the doctrine of creation and all that it pertains. Now, what do I mean when I say all that it pertains? Well, ethicists speak of creation ordinances in Genesis 1 and 2, which define universally human nature and are crucial to the basic interest of life. So you have these ordinances that cannot be tampered with. They cannot be compromised or you're going to have a real problem in your culture. Creation ordinances. 
Uh, J. Jack Collins, I think, helpfully organizes these ordinances into three simple categories. I've got them on the screen. First of all, the family, uh, including marriage, leading to offspring, who will fill the earth, who will fill the earth and serve as the basis for society. That's the first ordinance we see. Uh, the first command, you know, be fruitful, multiply. A second ordinance is labor. So uh, we subdue the earth, we exercise dominion, uh, we work and keep our gardens, if you will. In other words, our sphere of influence. We're faithful in our sphere of influence, in our work. And then third, religion. That is, we, we were created to worship the true and living God. And his alliteration, I think, helps us remember this. Wedlock, work and worship. Wedlock, work and worship. Those are the three, three overarching ordinances that we are given in creation. If any of these are compromised, have these been compromised? I mean, you don't even have to work today to get paid. And it certainly has been compromised in the area of worship and wedlock, marriage. Well, our passage tonight is going to emphasize wedlock. And the first thing we're going to see here is a stress. For the first time, there's a stress in the creation account. Adam's stress. He's not even aware that he's stressed, but there's a stress, as we're going to see. Look in verse 18 of Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, if you've been following the narrative, and I know that you have been, Verse 18 is something of a jolt. And why is that? Well, six times we've read, God saw it and it was good. And then on the seventh time we read, God saw his creation and it was what? Very good. Now for the first time, we read that something isn't good. And this observation is given by God himself. God saw it and it was not good. Now, there's a variety of reasons. Perhaps it wasn't good. Some have said because Adam was lonely. He was not lonely. He had perfect communion with God. If you have perfect communion with God, you will not be lonely. I do not believe that's the reason that it was not good. Now, I think there may be something to the fact that it wasn't good because God is a plurality. There's a plurality in the Godhead. And, and man in isolation cannot image him. We need community to image God. That may be part of the reason. But I would say the most fundamental reason that it wasn't good is that Adam's mandate required multiplication. He had been told to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. It required multiplication, which meant it required another gender. And so God makes a helper. Now, feminists hate this, that women are men's helpmates. But let me offer you a perspective. That word easer, you spell in English E-Z-E-R. That word for helper is most often used in the Old Testament, not for women, but for God himself. God is our helper. Is that demeaning to God? No, we find great hope in that. Let me give you one example of that. Exodus 18, 4, Moses says, 
The God of my father was my easer, was my help. And so there's nothing ignoble about a, a female being the helper of the man. And, and the function of the helper would be complementary to the man. Notice, fit for him. Fit for him. I will make a, him a helper fit for him, literally, according to his opposite. M women provide things that men cannot provide. They are complementary to each other. Now, this narrative is very funny in a sense because what we're going to see next is that God kind of leads Adam through an awareness program. And that's the second part of this passage, uh, Adam's search. He doesn't even know what he's searching for. It, it's, but this is God's way of teaching him he needs a helpmate. Look with me in verse 19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. It's been said the reason... He hadn't created a woman yet, is that it would have taken forever to name all those animals if Adam had had Eve with him. Just a kid, just kidding. Ooh, may regret that one. That's not in the notes. I got that from the spirit. What spirit? I won't say. Well, he brings. He brings the animals here before Adam in, in a kind of a, a mock search for a suitable helpmeet. And obviously, Adam is not going to find his counterpart with this search. And, and one of the things he would note about these animals that he was called to name, by the way, he's just imaging God because God named everything in Genesis 1, and now he's in the naming business. One of the things he's going to note here is that they all existed in pairs, all right? And that brings us to the solution that God is teaching Adam. Look with me in verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Now, some people have a hard time with this. How did he do all that in such a short time? Remember, Adam wasn't fallen. Uh, he had a perfect mind. And there was nothing fallen about him. He, he would have been a genius. Uh, he would have had capacities that not even the smartest of individuals in this world would have had. He would have been very efficient with his time. And uh, he would have been brilliant and genius in his level of IQ. His mind had not been affected by sin. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so God is teaching him that, right? There was not a helper fit for him. Now, remarkably, here's a statement that seems to be, in the providence of God, geared at today's intellectual world, uh, where in most college classrooms, in biology, they're taught uh, that macroevolution is a science. Uh, but this is distinctively teaching us that there is a qualitative and ontological difference between an animal and a human. And, and for uh, evolution to function, for it to work, there has to be procreative possibility from one species to another. 
And we see here that that is just not even biblical. It's not allowed. Well, notice in verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Um, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Well, just a couple of things of note here. First of all, man was fir- uh, uh, formed first from the ground. We saw that in Genesis 2, verse 7. And then Eve is formed from him. Now, Paul's going to make a point. We're not going to get into this today, but in 1 Timothy 2, Paul makes a point about the complementary relationships between men and women, and he says Adam was created first and then Eve. What Paul is saying is that it wasn't an accident. There was a theological reason that God created Adam first and then Eve. It wasn't that he was... um, impotent that he couldn't have created both at the same time but he was creating man first and in so doing he was making a theological point all right that men are called to be the leaders not because they're superior we've already established that men and women are equal as the image of God we're equal in in dignity and worth before God and before man and yet we have distinct roles the feminist movement wants to teach us that because we're equal in essence and power, or equal in essence and worth, that we have the same roles. Well, that's just nonsense. And anybody that has a newborn knows that's nonsense. There are things a mother can't, uh, can do that a, woman, a man can't do, right? And, and so there is a theological point being made here. Um, but as well, there's a beautiful gospel application here. That was picked up early and often in the first centuries of the early church by the fathers. Um, Andrew Bonar kind of summarizes how the fathers took this passage when he says, There must be sleep in the first Adam before God can take out of him the ordained spouse. And there must be death in the second Adam before God can take out of him the chosen bride. Now, this may flirt with allegory. I recognize that. But the theology's good. There's also a beautiful quote from Matthew Henry I'd like to share with you that I think is also being communicated here. And it's this. The woman was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Isn't that good? And so God puts Adam out, and and then he takes out his divine scalpel, and he cuts open Adam, and then he closes up the flesh at the place where he did the surgery. And by the way... Let me just give you food for thought here. The word there for rib is the word selah. You would spell it in English, T-S-E-L-A, selah. That word is used 39 times in the Old Testament, and this is the only place it's translated as rib. It's also translated, in fact, it's most often translated as side. 
So, for instance, it was used when they were building the tabernacle. It's talking about the sides of the various pieces of furniture. Nineteen times in the tabernacle, it was the building of the tabernacle. That word was sailor was used. It was used in the building of the tabernacle to speak of the sides of the furniture. And then in Ezekiel, it's used to speak of the future temple that will be built. And so it does not have to be translated rib. Maybe it's rightly translated rib. It's really not that important. Uh, the word is selah. It can be translated side. But God literally put him to sleep and slit open his side to communicate that women are equal with men. And yet they are created near his heart and under his arm. I think there's a lot to what Matthew uh, Henry is saying there. And so the woman was created here, and every aspect of her was perfect. Um, she's not in consummated form, but she is perfect. There's nothing fallen about her. And, and we see this by Adam's response, um, who by now was well acquainted with the fact that he needed a helpmate. And this produces not only the first human words in the Bible, it produces not only the first poetry in the Bible, it produces the first song. And we, uh, we see this in verse 23, Adam's song. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called... Woe, man, woman, because she was taken out of the man. Well, because God had given Adam the authority to name, he spontaneously declared, she shall be called woman, isha, isha. She, because she was taken out of man, ish. So woman is isha, man is ish. And so this sound play, which is intentional, celebrates their relationship. Adam is restating his own name is embedded in hers. It's the first love song. You know, a few years ago, those of us who are a little older remember the song from Barry Manilow, I Write the Song, that make the whole world sing. No, the whole world doesn't sing Barry Manilow songs. Adam wrote the song that makes the whole world sing. This is the first song, and it's the song that every believer has been singing ever since. And that brings us to one of the most important verses on marriage in the Bible, the Lord's statute. And that's verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become... One flesh. Let me just speak to this a moment. I've heard a lot of skeptics speak about the fact that the Old Testament sanctions polygamy. No. The Old Testament does not sanction polygamy. Genesis 2.24 becomes the lens by which you evaluate all sexual relationships for the rest of the Bible. And so when you read about a polygamous relationship, the author is winking. It's kind of a wink-wink saying, look what happens when 
God's people go rogue. Look what happens when God's image bearers go rogue on marriage. And so polygamy is never sanctioned in the Old Testament. No more than adultery or premarital sex or any other sexual deviant act is sanctioned. Genesis 2.24 becomes the lens for the rest, not only of the Bible, but of history. This is the most important verse in the Bible on, on marriage. And it really speaks to the consequence of God's charge for the family unit to propagate his rule, which was given to us in Genesis 1. Now, this passage, verse 24, involves three factors that you've heard. If you've been to very many weddings, leaving, cleaving, or uniting, and and public declaration. Notice, first of all, the word leave. A man shall leave his father and mother. Uh, Many marriages fail at this point, and I will speak this primarily to the college students and the youth. I have done a lot of marital counseling in my ministry, and this is often a massive problem in marriage. Husbands or wives fail to leave their parents, and it becomes a real issue in the marriage. First loyalties are not established. Genesis 2.24 is the word for that marriage. And then the word cleave or to unite is literally, literally you would translate this, sticks to his wife. Sticks to his wife. And it was a, a word that was used for Israel who was called to cleave to the Lord in covenant relationship. And so as the wife, the husband and wife cleave to each other, it, it, it's pointing beyond itself to the covenantal relationship that God's people has with their God. I'll give you a couple of verses for that. Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, and Deuteronomy 11, verse 22. Leaving and cleaving also involves a a public declaration in the sight of God. We see that here. It's public. The man has proclaimed, she shall be called woman. She was taken out of the man, and this is a public declaration that he is leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife. Marriage is not a private matter. Now, you can have a small wedding. There's nothing wrong with that. But the idea of some kind of private marriage is really an aberration spawned by the culture of individualism. We need to make sure that we're not enculturated when it comes to these things. Marriage and family are to be publicly celebrated. And marriage and family are the divine ideal for carrying out the mandate Now, let me speak to the singles here for a moment, because sometimes we make it sound like singleness is minor league or or second rate. Read 1 Corinthians 7 sometimes. Paul says singleness is a gift. It is a real gift to the kingdom of God. It is a real gift to the church, because single people have more time And they have more focus where married people have the distractions of of marriage and and child rearing. And so being single is, is not like a leper in the leper colony. It is actually a beautiful thing. But he's speaking here to the norm, the general norm. Most people are not called to singleness. And if you're single today and you're wondering, well, when is the Lord gonna provide me a spouse? Be of good cheer. 
Uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. Your job is not to go find a spouse. Your job is to seek first the kingdom of God. And then God, he'll have you at the right place at the right time for Mr. or Mrs. Right. And so this is a word um, for all of us. Furthermore, as James Montgomery Boyce points out, when God brought the first woman to the first man, he wasn't just providing Adam a helper. He's establishing marriage as the first and most basic human institution. That's why we should not be shocked that there is an assault uh, directed to marriage. Uh, God is establishing the home based on this mutual respect and love for a husband and his wife, for each other, and all other human institutions come from that. It starts with the family unit. It starts with godly marriage. And so these words, Genesis 2.24, becomes the foundation for the Bible's teaching on marriage. It's the only statement, this verse is the only statement on marriage in the Bible that is given five times. Five times we read this verse in the Bible. We read it here in Genesis 2, verse 24. We read it in Matthew 19, verse 5. Jesus quotes it there. We read about it in Mark 10, verses 7 and 8. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. And then Ephesians 5, verse 31. Do you know what that means? God intentionally did not put a parent and child in the garden. He put a husband and wife. And that means marriage supersedes all other relationships. It supersedes a, a parent's relationship to a child. In fact, the, the, the most important gift you can offer your child is a strong marriage. There's a great security that comes with that. And when you see Christians who, who divorce their spouses <coughs> for unbiblical reasons... There's, there's something fundamentally flawed about that. It bears false witness to a, um, a responsibility that marriage has in the culture. Uh, marriage displays a mystery. Get these words from Ephesians 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Where did Paul get that from? Genesis 2.24. And the two shall become one flesh... And get this, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Paul is giving you an inspired vision of the purpose of marriage. And it's not about my personal happiness. My marriage is intended, your marriage is intended to, to unfold a mystery of the relationship that Christ has with his church. You know what else that means? It means marriage isn't about us. It isn't about us Every marriage is a picture of Jesus and his relationship to his bride, the church. But because of our sins, many slanderous lies are told oftentimes by our marriages. So, for instance, if a man deserts his wife, he's saying that's the kind of bridegroom Jesus is. He'll desert you when you're not deserving. When a man is harsh with his wife, he's saying, that's the kind of bridegroom Jesus is. He's harsh with you. When a man commits adultery on his wife, he's saying, that's the kind of bridegroom Jesus is. 
He will. He cannot be trusted. But here's what I want to end with. Jesus can be trusted. He is the ultimate, consummate bridegroom. He can be trusted when his bride can't. You all know that. All of you have been there. He can be trusted when his bride can't. You see, later, Adam would say, don't blame me. Blame my bride. Centuries later, Jesus would go to the cross and say, don't blame my bride. Blame me. And the sins of the bride were imputed to the bridegroom. And that becomes really the model for how we love our brides. Don't blame her, blame me. Absorb the debt, and then I'm going to love her by absorbing that debt. That's what John says in 1 John chapter 4. And that's why you're here tonight, because you've experienced that by faith. But we also know that there may be some here who haven't. And so as Adam comes forward and the musicians, uh, we would love for you to, to come speak to our pastors at the end of the aisles here. I just made a comment uh, where I juxtaposed what Adam did with Jesus. Maybe you have questions about that. Adam said, don't, don't blame me. Blame my bride in the garden in Genesis 3. We'll get to that next week. And that's the natural way we respond to things, isn't it? But in a greater Adam came, the faithful Adam, the one who came and undid what the first Adam did. And he said, no, that's not how I roll. I'm not going to blame them. You take the blame and pour it out on me and judge me for it so that my bride can be redeemed. And if you have questions about that, we'd love to talk to you about that. Pray with you, uh, whatever it might be, whatever your need is tonight. We'd love to pray with you, talk to you. So let's stand and sing. Won't you? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.